Good evening. Um, I'm Angela Kreger, and I teach in the Department of History and the Program in History of Science, and I'm very pleased this evening to welcome you to this year's Walter Edge Lecture in Public and International Affairs. The Walter Edge Lectures were set up in honor of Walter Edge, who was twice the governor of New Jersey, once from 1917 to 1919, and once from 1944 to 1946. He also served in the U.S. Senate and was an ambassador to France. So he had a long and distinguished career uh, in public life. And the lectures have been given since 1958. And they have included lectures by uh, such prominent scholars and public figures as George Kennan, John Kenneth Galbraith, Edward Teller, Isaac Asimov, Carl, Carl Shorsky, and not least, the father of tonight's lecturer, Freeman Dyson, who spoke almost 20 years ago on arms control and defense. So, and we're really pleased that Professor Dyson could be here this evening as well. So tonight, I'm extremely pleased to introduce you uh, to introduce to you George Dyson, who grew up in Princeton and attended uh, school here. And when he wasn't in school, he was in the uh, bowels of Firestone Library getting a real education instead. He uh, left Princeton at the tender age of 17 to go to British Columbia, where he began to build canoes and um, in particular uh, resurrected the Bedarka, or Alut kayak. And he also is uh, well known for having lived in a treehouse for some number of years, 95 feet above the ground. Um, so he has a, uh, an unusual educational background as compared to many lecturers who are at this podium. Uh, a little, about 20 years ago, he began writing on science and technology, especially computers. Uh, in an article that he contributed after publishing on uh, the kayak, he began to uh, write about the invention of the computer at the Institute for Advanced Study. And this has been a topic near and dear to his heart that he's continued to sustain. I had the pleasure of getting to know um, George two years ago at the Institute for Advanced Study, where I was on sabbatical leave, and he was the director's visitor that year doing research on the topic of his current book project on uh, the origins of computing at the Institute for Advanced Study. So I was extraordinarily pleased to see that he had been invited back to Princeton uh, to give the lecture this evening. He's the author of three books, Badarka, Darwin Among the Machines, and Project Orion, and tonight we'll be pleased to hear material from his new book project. So please welcome George Dyson. Thank you very much. It's a tremendous honor to be here. When I, get, when I got the letter inviting me and to thank the committee, I, I thought it was a mistake. They really had meant to invite my father. The letter had gone to me, and I realized they already had invited my father, so maybe, maybe it was true. And then I thought, well, look at the list of these lectures primarily are about public affairs and world affairs, and then I realized, well, you know, the, the sort of Invention of the computer here in Princeton really did change world affairs probably more than almost anything else that's been been done in Princeton since the Revolutionary War itself. And and all that, that time I spent in Firestone Library, that was time I was supposed to be in school, but I skipped school and and I thank the the guards at the library who, who I think must have seen that some, you know, little high school kid was sneaking in but didn't say anything and let me sort of hang out in the in the stacks until school got out and I would, would come back out. So I'll, I'll tell you very quickly what, what happened here, which really, truly was a revolution. I mean, we, 
we look at the Big Bang in, in cosmology and so when we, we're still arguing about what really happened, when it really started, what happened in that microsecond when the universe began. With the digital universe that we all live in, the, you know, you can carry a little backup of your presentation in your pocket that's uh, eight billion bits of, of you know, little digital universe in your pocket. All that that we now transmit over the internet and back and forth, it all started with one little matrix here in Princeton, a 32 by 32 bit by 40 bits deep little matrix of memory that, that John von Neumann um, built here. And uh, and that thing, it, it, like the Big Bang, it exploded and it grew and it... Uh, it turned into the world we, we live in today where almost everything we do is, is digital in some form or it's mirrored digitally by, by some, something going on in computers. The memory was actually in these little, look like cylinders there. There were 40 of them. And von Neumann, so he was a revolutionary, but he was not the first. And he, what happens in science, if you do something great, you start getting credit, and suddenly you're getting all the credit, and you're getting credit from people around you. And he was surrounded by people who gave him good ideas and predecessors who gave him good ideas. It goes back, really, or I would take it back to Thomas Hobbes, uh, who really was the first to ask this question, what about uh, machines coming to life if you build automata, do they, do they have a life of their own? So that was the question that, that Hobbes asked in 1651. And 300 years later, von Neumann was asking, trying to answer this same question, which is what he was doing up, up till the time he died. He never got to answer that question. Hobbes really did sort of make a landmark in, in, in logic, which is essentially, if you read what Hobbes is saying here, this was rephrased in Princeton also by by Alonzo Church. So this is really, we know it as Church's thesis. But to Hobbes, it was, it was saying that everything that uh, is effectively calculable can be done with addition of, and subtraction. And that's really the secret of computing. Just by adding ones and zeros, you can, if you can do that, you can then do everything. It may be slow. Uh, if the machines are slow, you build faster machines. If the if you have a hard time answering the problem, you, you build faster machines. If you have a hard time asking the question, you hire more programmers. And uh, Leibniz, who was Hobbes' contemporary, he took this one step further and said that, well, not only, you know, not only machines with wheels, but how about machines without wheels? How about binary machines? And here, Leibniz, just the true prophet, is saying you can build a machine using... Uh, you know, black and white marbles going down tracks, and they can represent binary numbers, and you can do all the functions of arithmetic by shifting these tracks from one uh, track to another, which is essentially how computers work today, except instead of marbles, we're using pulses of electrons, and they're running down uh, microprocessors. And the, so what Leibniz had done was invent the shift register, which then was later, 300 years later, reinvented here in Princeton uh, by the team of engineers working for von Neumann, and the very first shift register is actually, it's in the basement of uh, Julian Bigelow's house on Horner Lane, and it's still there. So here in Princeton, we have all these artifacts from, from this great uh, revolutionary event, which somehow, Princeton, I mean, why was Princeton the center of all this? The, uh, Alan Marquand, who we know as an art historian, built the, the, what's, as far as we know, the first logical machine that did 
uh, sort of Boolean logic mechanically. And then Charles Saunders Pierce, the philosopher, uh, who saw this wrote back and said, "Well, you'd really, you really, know, if you really want to do this fast and better, you should do it with electricity." So this, which is actually out of fire, out of the archives of, of Firestone, is as far as the world of historians know, the first diagram for an electrical logic machine, which then came back as in what von Neumann did. There were other threads that came to, to this conjunction in the 1940s. The problem of, of how to predict the weather was pioneered by Lewis Richardson, who came up with the idea of, of dividing, let's divide the planet into cells and then exchange differential equations between the cells. And if we can start doing the arithmetic fast enough, we can do this actually faster than the weather itself and we'll be able to predict it. He, he figured you needed 64,000 people doing the arithmetic. Uh, and here's his, he was also interested in electronics. Here's his electrical model illustrating a mind having a will but capable of only two ideas. <laughs> and this really answers the whole question of artificial intelligence. It's a, it's a graduated thing. You can go from something as simple as this, only capable of two ideas, to something as complicated as human beings who, who essentially have an infinite number of, of states and infinite number of ideas. And somewhere in between, computers are moving gradually along that gray line. Uh, and then the world of logic. So Princeton was this place where... Th- RCA was here with the electronics, and the logicians were here with the logic, and the two were just on a collision path. Uh, Kurt Gödel, who had this, at that time, almost near-crazy idea that, that all concepts could be given numbers, and everything could be given a numerical sort of address and treated through arithmetic and logic at the same time, and that from that he came to his great proof. And, and now in our real world, Today, everything does have a number. All, all of us have numbers. You know, the operating system in this computer is simply one big, long number. And, and I think Gödel's idea of addressing concepts by numbers somehow uh, played into what von Neumann did. Then Turing came here to Princeton in 1936, 1937. With his great contribution, we now, we now call the Turing machine, which was dividing the, the whole concept of computing into two parts, a long, uh, finite but unbounded tape and a memory with a, with a finite but unbounded number of states. And he showed, which, which was another proof of Church's thesis, that you could, if you could do this at all, it was universal and you could, you could compute anything given enough time. Uh, so he talked in the 30s, completely abstract, the idea of computing machines. And what von Neumann, von Neumann did was bring Turing's ideas to life make it something real that was was replicated. And now, today, you know, all the computers that sit on our desks are essentially are, are Turing machines, and the Internet itself is the finite but unbounded tape. You can always find something else on the Internet, and it, the, the tape has no boundaries. We really, we used to think this was a very, you know, only a crazy logician would think of, you know, that these infinite tapes would never exist, and now they really do. So we owe a tremendous amount to Turing. If, if he had come to Princeton and been, been more diplomatic and more businesslike, um, maybe he would have stayed, and he would have been the person who went to RCA and built these things. But it was von Neumann who had, was the orchestra conductor, who had the connections to, to bring the money and the ideas 
uh, and a great diplomat to bring it all together as, as far back as 1945, before any of this happened, when I was already signed on as a consultant uh, with IBM. So everything was in place. Uh, to do this here at von Neumann with Oscar Morgenstern, also from the university here. So his connections were extremely good to, to catalyze this revolution and bring it into the mainstream of both American and international life. As a child, von Neumann was the son of a banker who had apparently one day brought home the uh, card-controlled loom from, from one of the firms he was doing a banking transaction for, and that made a great impression on young John, who's here with his cousin Lily uh, doing math. So he, he was a prodigy. To many, many people who knew him, he was the quickest mind they ever knew, and came out of this amazing school of students in uh, Budapest who changed Eugene Wigner, Paul Erdos, Leo Szilard, this, this whole gang who came to America under, into the, you know, under the persecution of the 30s and, and changed our country and changed the world. So he had been in Berlin, then came to Princeton, was invited by um, Oswald Veblen, who was sort of the grandfather of this whole thing. Veblen came to Princeton in 1905, uh, really built up the math department, worked on uh, ballistics at the Aberdeen Proving, Proving Ground in World War I, so he had this uh, great sense of both pure and applied math, and really uh, he was the nephew of Thorstein Veblen, so also has a very, very large breadth of, of interests, brought Niels Bohr to Princeton. Um, here, he was also very modest, didn't, didn't take too much credit here, uh, Oppenheimer is writing, is proposing, this is a year before Veblen died, that they should rename near the road near Maxwell Lane, Veblen Court, and then on the bottom of V, said no, would rather wait until dead. Uh, so, so at the Institute, there's really, there's really only that one road named after Veblen. He actually was, the, the idea for the Institute for Advanced Study really came from Veblen. He, 1924, he wrote to Simon Flexner, who was the director of the, of the Rockefeller Foundation, sort of proposing this idea of a, of a pure mathematical institute. And Simon Flexner, who's not the Flexner we know from the institute, said, sometime you should speak with my brother, Abraham Flexner. And it was Abraham Flexner who, who actually put, who was connected to the Bambergers and put this thing together. But the idea really went back to, to Veblen's original concept. Abraham Lecture was a great critic of, of American education. Do Americans really value education? The usefulness of useless knowledge. He believed strongly that people should be left to pursue pure research and, and let the benefits come later. And he convinced the Bambergers, who ran the department store here in, in Newark and Princeton when I was a kid, to, to fund this thing with a substantial endowment we really owe everything to them. They, they created this, the place off on the other side of the golf course that all this happened. That's Louis Bamberger. Great visionary. That was his department store. Here, this is the bill for Niels Bohr staying at 14 Dickinson Street. And so you can see the sheets are purchased from Bamberger. So it worked both ways. <laughs> uh, Flexner took a very personal strong interest as the founder here. Uh, Herman Weil has, has declined the invitation to the Institute and, and 
Bamberger's a little upset, but saying it's our understanding that von Neumann was engaged to take his place. So that's how von Neumann got hired. Von Neumann came to the university in 1930, sharing a position with Wigner, and then was brought over to the institute as the fourth uh, professor in 1933. Quick appointment. Veblen, this is Veblen's wife, setting up tea in Fine Hall. So the institute first existed here on campus in Fine Hall. This was a symbiosis between the university and the institute, and all the mathematicians lived very closely together. They belonged to the tea club. I think this is, this is one of the secrets that worked so well. They all uh, had tea together, and it was really it was really the center of mathematics in the in the world. Here, von Neumann is off doing field research on game theory at the uh, casino on the park, who is writing to Fine Hall to see if his credit uh, is good. Uh, so von Neumann was, was an unknown quantity at that time. Gödel is telegramming, telegraphing from uh, London to, to send a copy of Gödel's Continuum Hypothesis notes. So everything at that time in the world in mass, really Princeton was the center of it. You could get if you were the Bambergers or Flexner, you could get a lot for very little money at that time. This is the list. These are annual salaries. So, Gödel is uh, is two hundred a month. Uh, Erdos is seven fifty for the year. He he, as we know, sort of was was able to scavenge. So, uh, it didn't cost much to set this up. And you could also get land. So here they're looking at buying the, the institute sort of is growing and needs its own place. So they're looking at 40 acres overlooking the golf course for $80,000. And that was Veblen's. Veblen had a summer place in Maine. He, it's really, to Veblen we owe the institute woods because he pushed, he just kept buying land. Every time land became available, Veblen pushed to buy it, which was a very smart thing to do. And he also, he gave, in, really, the town of Princeton, we owe Veblen not only the, all those Institute Woods, but also Herontown Woods was donated by the Veblen family after he, after he died. So the, the Institute sort of went into the, what had been the battlefield. Walter Edge, who, who this lecture is in honor of, was governor and pushed very hard for the battlefield park. So really the Institute and the battlefield came, came in together and saved that, that huge chunk, kept that huge chunk of Princeton open and, and free from development. Uh, Fald Hall was built in 1939. You can see the first professors. Uh, Professor Veblen hired first. Actually, Alexander was second, didn't have a corner office. Einstein and von Neumann. So there's a very strong faculty. Then they brought in Morse. So they had six in, in, in the first few years. Now, we all know that, that Einstein wrote this great letter, in, 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 important letter in 1939, telling Roosevelt about the possibility of a bomb. Actually, I think a more important letter was... This letter, written by Veblen and von Neumann, um, essentially saying that the Germans might be working on, on bombs and that uh, the government was not doing anything. What, what later became the Manhattan Project had not started and that privately something should be done immediately. And this letter actually had more, in some ways more effect than Szilard's letter that in that the Rockefeller Foundation did step in immediately through the Institute and started bringing physicists out of Europe. Very, they brought Dirac uh, to, to Princeton and kept, brought as many people as they could into the, into the West to keep them from, from what well, they were afraid of falling into the hands of the Germans. And so von Neumann and Veblen both shared this sort of warrior background. They had both you know, worked on weapons. 
when Neumann's work became central to the success of the, the real problem in, in doing an atomic bomb with almost was not nuclear, it was simply doing something very artistic with high explosives to get the pressures high enough. And von Neumann helped solve that, which led to the, the first implosion bomb. And in that, uh, they had to do a lot of computation using very primitive IBM card-controlled calculators and so on uh, to get this thing to work at all and then to refine it later. So von Neumann and people like Ulam and Feynman, they all uh, came together to solve these computational problems and that's what, what really led von Neumann after the war, I think, to take such a strong interest in computing, to be exposed to it at Los Alamos. So this, is, this is a quote that came by Freeman, that, that, that computers would be more important than bombs in the long run. But truly, he was thinking about bombs and computers. The problems that were, were really run first on the machine here were, were uh, neutron diffusion problems for the atomic bombs and then the, the really big problems for the hydrogen bomb which were run here in, in around 1952. Stan, that's not Stan Ulam, that's actually Stan uh, Frankel and Nick Metropolis couldn't, you know, it was these Los Alamos mathematicians were coming to Princeton to work on these problems but it was not it was not open, it was not public, it was, it was quite secret still. Even the maintenance is the, the owner's manual for the ENIAC which was still a restricted document in 1946. So the only computer there was was the ENIAC that had a, had a memory of 20 numbers. And what von Neumann was proposing to do here was, was much larger than that. Monte Carlo was the, the way of, of sort of statistically solving some of these otherwise intractable problems. So this is, this is really some of the first software, how to, how to run these problems, which were the coding was done for the Institute machine, but then the problems were actually run on the ENIAC. So, this new method is based on a vocabulary, a set of orders which is conveyed to the machine on two levels, the background coding and the problem coding. That's a fundamental breakthrough. That's really the invention of software as we know it, where you have an operating system that is sort of setting up the machine and then you run, you know, you run Windows and then you run Word. You don't, you, you don't have to buy the whole thing at once. Or you, you didn't until Microsoft. <laughs> and, so the, the prevailing history of computing has the ENIAC at the, at the bottom of the tree. It's always the, the, the root of the tree is the ENIAC. Turing and Leibniz are, are left out of this picture. Um, and the IS computer is sort of off on one branch. And I, my job is to correct that mistake. I mean, that's, I think, why I was brought to the Institute two years ago, is that, that really the Institute computer belongs much further down on the trunk, that von Neumann was involved with the ENIAC. The Institute machine was being designed already in 1945 and should be further down that trunk. But because the machine took so long to get built and some of the problems that were coded for it were then later run on the ENIAC, the ENIAC sort of, sort of be, the distance is farther than it really should be. This is the report on the EDVAC, which was the successor to the ENIAC, where von Neumann was, was the sole author, but actually it was the work of many people. That's the copy that's right here in the fine library. This is, this is the very, very important document in the history of computing, where von Neumann is really re working out himself exactly what Leibniz had done, figuring out how you're going to do all the functions simply from addition and subtraction and how you can build adders out of these uh, sort of yes-no organs. And then the architecture, which we now know is the von Neumann architecture of the 
the central arithmetic unit, the central control, the memory, and the input-output. And Willis Ware, one of his engineers who lived here in Princeton, uh, I think said it more clearly than, than anyone, that really these were the ideas of lots of people, but it was von Neumann who, who brought them together and made them work. And he, you know, so already earlier than we think, September 1945, the Institute is pushing this, trying to raise private money to do it, that this will, will open universes which are at the present moment entirely outside the range of any instrument now existing. So it was, the idea was to build this as a scientific instrument open to the world, not as, as something proprietary belonging to a company or belonging to the government. And that's, that's where the Institute stepped in, took the lead, wasn't going to cost much, that's the original budget. Those four mathematicians, that's $6,000 a year. The computers are humans who will, who will do calculations by hand to sort of test the software before the machine is built. So, but Neumann was plugged in. This was the committee he was on of the, all the other people working computing at that time. I've picked out Caldwell and, and Weaver. Weaver from the, was the guy with the money, um, you know, who was quite aware, saying here that the device we're dreaming about is something much more than a computing device. So many people besides von Neumann were dreaming about doing this. And, and so it didn't come out of his mind alone. Caldwell was rather, you know, a little bit taken aback. And, uh, so this is his confidential letter to Weaver, who sent him to, to review the von Neumann proposal. That, you know, the relay computer contains 5,000 to 15,000 relays. So what? Does von Neumann think the electronic machine will not contain thousands of something? So, you know, these people were computing quite well with relays, and the idea of doing it with unreliable vacuum tubes just, just didn't make sense. It, they thought that it would, the government would be better to spend their money on more relays and, and not vacuum tubes. This is Marston Morse here, the, the pure mathematician at the Institute, also commenting to Weaver, I want to say to you confidentially that it would be a great service to the Institute if you would continue your insistence on a budget. A few underestimates in the whole character of the Institute would be changed to follow through. The bigger it gets, the more ambiguous it is. So, the, the, again, the, the view that the Institute mathematicians didn't understand the importance of von Neumann, what he wanted to do, I think is wrong. They, they understood very well that it was important and successful. They just questioned whether it belonged at the Institute. And, and, in, and in many ways, they were right. It, it, it did change the character of the Institute. And it might well have better been done at MIT or here at Princeton University or at RCA. But it happened at the Institute because von, von Neumann was there and essentially threatened to leave if it wasn't, wasn't done. So the Institute trustees vote $100,000. RCA steps in and they offer $100,000. In exchange, they want patent rights, which, which created problems. And the, the line that's cut off, the university here also offers to help with, with lab work at Palmer Labs and so on. And that actually never happened. Um, RCA contributed quite a bit. Princeton University really, we'll, we'll see, did very little. But they contributed the people. They contributed von Neumann. Um, John Tukey was on the original committee. So the first meetings for this project were held at RCA in Vladimir Zvorikin's office, the, the duck hunter in the Pheasant Hunter in the center there. And Zorikin was key in this because he, he was the Russian engineer who really brought television to fruition. He was sort of the von Neumann of television and thought that RCA could become the, you know, the RCA of computers as well. Got no support from headquarters. Um, 
but at the beginning, it's sort of, so I think, what gave von, von Neumann the, the confidence to do it here. So this is from the very the sort of manifesto they drew up at the first meeting, which has the essential principles of the modern computer are laid out, that words coding the orders are handled in the memory just like numbers. And that's the great sort of groundbreaking distinction that, that uh, up till then, you know, scientists dealt with numbers as numbers that mean things. Now we sort of went into the good old Turing universe where numbers are actually doing things. Numbers are actually having an effect on the real world. And, and sort of all hell broke loose after that. The RCA, I mean, the question was, where do you put the memory? We had no memory at that time. So RCA was going to build this thing called the Selectron, which is like the, it's like the dinosaur with feathers. Um, and, and like IBM, the first thing they did was put their initials on it. So it's a vacuum, a digital vacuum tube. We think of vacuum tubes and digital as, as separate worlds. RCA was going to build the missing link, a vacuum tube that, that processed digital information inside the tube. It was a terribly difficult engineering problem. Um, this is sort of some of the stuff. The guy who did that was Jan Reichmann. And it really was. It was essentially the microprocessor done in a vacuum tube. And the only problem was it was about six years late. So the computer actually got built with something else. And then, and then RCA wanted to secure the patent rights to that, and that became a big problem uh, because other money was coming from the Navy who wanted no patent rights, and, and the Institute didn't want to get involved with patents at all. So von Neumann stepped in again as it, as it made a sort of a diplomatic compromise between these groups that, the, that everybody would cross-license their rights and RCA would get what they want. But it really fell apart on that. What Neumann here is saying that, that he's trying to go down the middle so you know the employees get something and the Institute gets something. In the end, the Institute never exercised those patent rights. If they had, I think the Institute would be larger than the university rather than the other way around. Um, so all the patent rights, all the employees had to sign these agreements where all their rights to any patents in, in digital computing were signed over the Institute for a dollar each. And, and those agreements were just locked up and nothing was ever, ever done, which didn't sit well with some of the engineers. So these early reports, which really are a blueprint for building the modern computer, uh, were freely published. No proprietary knowledge. And that, so that was bad for the engineers who, who otherwise might have got wealthy, but it was great for the world of science. It meant that copies of von Neumann's machine were built in, a, in about 11 or 12 other laboratories around the world at the same time. And that's, that's really why this, this whole revolution happened so fast. The question at the Institute was where to put these people. Fald Hall, after the war, was absolutely packed. In fact, the, we... Most people forget, but the League of Nations occupied the, the uh, top floor because the League of Nations had been moved out of uh, um, Geneva and, and or it wasn't the whole League of Nations, but part of it. There were about 14 League of Nations people stuck in there. So the computer people got the basement and they got the, um, the annex to Gödel's office because Gödel was illustrious enough to have a, a sort of room for a secretary, but he was nervous enough he didn't want a secretary next to him. So this room next to Girl's office was empty, and that's where uh, Arthur Burks, John von Neumann, and, and Hermann Goldstein wrote that they're sort of the, the great documents of computing were, were done right in that office next to Girl. So Girl's strange ideas of, of numerical addressing of concepts and stuff came to life 
in, in the room next to him. The whole the idea of an and or gate, I mean, that didn't come from nature. It had to be invented, and it was invented there. The idea of how are you going to do this logic, how are you going to build an adder, there's lots of different ways you could. How, how you will get vacuum tubes with these strange, very non-digital sloppy waveforms to do reliable binary computation and how the order codes would evolve, how you would give the instructions to the machine to change its state. So they had to choose one way or another. Here you have a, a notes, and these notes all come out of Julian Bigelow's basement right, right here down by the shopping center. And it says liked and disliked. And probably they had this out and, and von Neumann came in for a review or something and, and, and liked this and disliked that. And then that's the way it was and that's the way it is in all the millions of computers we use today. Here is, is this is like the, the Dead Sea Scrolls of, of you know, our modern computing systems. Let, or here, here's a transcription, let a word 40 BD, which is binary digit. They had not come up, it was John Tukey who came up with the abbreviation BIT, so this is pre-Tukey. Let a word 40 binary digits be two orders. Each order is a command and an address. And that's the origin of the command line, the whole, what drove IBM and Unix and all the systems we still use today. This came, as far as we know, from that scrap of paper. And the order codes, these order codes then became like the you know, nucleotides back in the, in the original RNA world or something. Once they came into existence, the universe was stuck. That we still use these original order codes that came to life in that office next to Gödel. They still run, you know, all the machines in the world still the same way, you know, Windows still has DOS back down many levels down, and, and in biology, we just tend to, to build new layers on old systems. It's very hard to get rid of an old system. So these order codes are still swimming around um, by the billions in everything we do today. Where to put the people? Uh, now this is Adeloth, the director, telling von Neumann that, well, he can have the, the room next to the men's bathroom in the basement. And, so you'd think there'd be no objection to that. But this is Benjamin Merritt, the uh, Middle Eastern archaeologist, complaining that, that you know, he's storing stuff in that room and, and the, you know, the electronic experts are moving into the uh, humanist part of the institute. The budget, very low to begin with, uh, November to April for you know, less than $5,000. This is a turning point. Now this is sort of the nose, the camel's nose getting in the tent. The first four dollars for electrical work. <laughs> and and it, it, it all went downhill from there. And now we actually see where, what the university finally contributed. They were digging a big hole for Firestone Library and the, the they were tired of all these engineers in Fall Hall so they essentially kicked them out. And Push them as far away as possible, which is just a rather swampy land at the bottom of, of where the housing project is now. And they needed fill to, to, to fill up the swamp. And, and that fill, as far as I know, actually did come from the stacks of Firestone Library. So that was, we are almost standing on the ground on which the first computer was, was built. The team brought in was, you know, I think that's how I became interested in this project, was that the institute was full of these theoreticians, but there were a few engineers. Julian Bigelow, had been Norbert Wiener's engineer during during the war. Hermann Goldstein had had been really the, the leader of the ENIAC project. There's Oppenheimer just just stepping in for the photographer. 
he, he didn't, was not directly involved in much of the computer project in von Neumann. But the, the people who did this were very, very original. It was more of the engineers who did the real work. And then they, they dispersed. They went to, uh, Gerald Esterin went to Israel, others went to Illinois, and, and built copies of this machine. Willis Ware went to Rand. So this thing was replicated all over the world. And the programmers, too, went and did programming at many other. Most of the programming was done by women, pe um, some people we know. This is uh, Jean Spitzer, who is, is, I don't know if is related to the space telescope or not, but I, but I think so. So many local people were hired to do programming for this project. The engineers themselves, they were, they were the geeks of the time, uh, the hackers. This is a now famous letter com complaining about the computer work habits. That they should have their tea under proper supervision. And, and the, the computer programmers have had their revenge because if you if you're at the institute today and you're you're a, a art historian and you're working late and you want a cup of tea at, at midnight there's only one place you can go and that's Shimoni Hall which was built by a computer programmer so so it was it was very incongruous at the institute to to actually have people with soldering guns and you know machine shops and drill presses the work, and I would love to find, if anyone knows of anyone here in town, a lot of the work was done by high school students, the actual production, you know, because you not only had to build one shift register, you had to build 40 of everything. And Julian Bigelow brought in high school kids after school who did that and worked in the summers, and some of those people must still be around who helped with that. And to do this with vacuum tubes was, a, was an incredible challenge. I mean, vacuum tubes behave, they're not binary uh, instruments. So you have this great sloppy region and then there's this very narrow area where you can sort of, if you're lucky and the voltage is just right and the weather is okay outside and Princeton's terribly bad for that. Uh, it's one of the worst environments in the world for electrostatic phenomena. You, you can get binary behavior, but it wasn't easy. They used standard off-the-shelf parts. Nothing was, was specially built. All, a lot of it war surplus. They used 6J6 tubes. They found that the, most, the more common mass-produced tubes were more reliable than the more expensive, um, less common tubes. Here are various ways of doing shift registers. Uh, you can see sort of seeing all these tubes as communicating uh, banks of cells. So. It, the thing was not really seen as a sequential computer. It really was, was, was a parallel state device. The total number of tubes, 3,474 in the entire machine. And that was, compared to the ENIAC, was 18,000 tubes and, and many, several orders of magnitude less powerful. The writing of the says, if you, Fred, if you have time, please tighten all the nuts. And all this was not only done, but it was documented. And those, that was also difficult to, to not only do this and do it quickly, but keep records of it and publish it and get those reports out and circulated. Uh, and you know, the number of engineers grew. And this quote from Irving 
from Jack Good is, is these, these reports went everywhere. He was in England at that time, and these reports were coming in explaining not only what they were doing, how they were doing it, but why they were doing it. And the whole world copied that, and that's why some of the copies of the Institute Machine were better than the Institute Machine, because things could be improved by, by other people. And all those reports, they're now in the rare book room at the, the Rosenberg, Rosenwald room at uh, the Institute. If you look at the back, you'll see that where they, you know, they've all been taken out from interlibrary loan by IBM, National Cash Register, RCA. So that information went out there. The machine itself was very efficient. It was, I mean, Bigelow was an engineer. He built the thing like an engine, like a V40 engine. For its time, it was extremely fast. I mean, you're talking about, you know, microseconds to do multiplication, which was, which was unheard of at that time. And it, it was asynchronous in the sense it didn't have a steady-state clock. It, you could slow it down. You just go tick, 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 or it could go to a peak speed of about 16 kilocycles. So if things were going wrong, you could slow it down and see every step. And it was compact, like the way your brain is folded into your skull so that the connection times were, were shorter. And that really was the, the work of Julian Bigelow with the help of, of his whole team. James Pomerine here, one of the people who is still alive. The memory was in these... Oscilloscope tubes. They had to, what could they get off the shelf since RCA was late? So they took these oscilloscope tubes and, you know, rewired them, put an amplifier and a screen on the face. You, it's effective when you turn your television off for, for a few seconds, there's still static on the glass. So they're using the screen like a capacitor and then found they could, they could do actually an array of 32 by 32 spots. So each of those spots is a memory location, and if you shoot the electron gun back at that spot, with a, you can keep those spots going sort of on millisecond cycles, and then in microseconds you can go back and read them. It was very, very clever. It took incredible electronics to get it to work. And then the result is that you can distinguish between a 1 and a 0 and get back to it. And that was the first random access memory, where you could put a, me a number into a memory address and get it back at any time. Up till then, computers were, were serial, not, uh, not random. That was a huge breakthrough. But each tube had its own idiosyncrasies. There's logbooks with a, each tube had its own logbook documenting when it was going bad or getting better. Um, and so you could store 1,024 bits in each tube, and then there were 40 of those tubes. So all 40 tubes had to be working perfectly. Here is one that's not working perfectly is being hit with a hammer, which was because if you get a little bit of dust on the face of the tube, you, you chance that you know, if you hit it, it might get worse or it might get better. Um, so the fact that this thing worked at all was a miracle. But in the end, it did, and it worked, it worked for years. And it had to be very heavily air-conditioned. 16,000 BTUs of heat were produced by, by all these tubes. The input-output originally was by paper telegraph tape and then later went to IBM cards. Bigelow wasted probably a year trying to build this bicycle wheel high-speed wire drive to get a sort of high... This is really the, the archetype of the modern, your modern hard disk. Um, using that kind of behavior, in fact, if you could, you could store magnetic you know, pulses along this wire, but then the, you know, this is binary data. You're supposed to be able to read that and get reliable. You know, you're going to build hydrogen bombs using calculations done with this kind of sloppy stuff. But yet they did by very cleverly, this is again part of a Neumann's genius, of figuring out redundant ways of checking the calculations as they went along. Then they went to a drum. The original Institute drum is still now in Israel. It went to the Weizmann Institute 
after it was replaced in Princeton. So these things have really distributed, literally changed the world. The input-output keyboard oscilloscope, the first graphic display, so ancient, ancient history for, for computer graphics people. 1948, they do the first character bitmap display. So that's sort of, you know, if you had to go back to Pixar's origins, that's, that's really the origins of the storing digital information in, in the memory of the machine. And the odd thing was that in this computer, the, the pixels were the memory. The cathode ray tube that we now later use to display the memory, actually the memory of the machine was on the face of, of the display. So it meant you could go back and you could see the calculation as it, as it went along. The, the tubes would flicker and you could look at them. So von Neumann was concerned in an abstract way, how can you build... He was interested in the brain. How, does, how do we have reliable people with all these unreliable neurons? Is it multiplexed? How is it done? Um, he was very concerned with that. Did work that still should be read by people trying to make reliable. Because at that time, the, the hardware was sloppy, but the, code, the codes were small enough to be perfect. So you have perfect codes, but very imperfect hardware. Now we have perfect hardware and very imperfect codes. So the situation is reversed, but the solutions really could be the same. The people here working for him, so now we're going to get into some of the logbooks, logbook number one, 1952. They had to actually do, you know, produce reliable results using all this unreliable equipment. So here we have, you know, for running time of two minutes, it took 90 minutes just to get the, the program and the code in and out of the machine by IBM and Teletype. Um, always trying to distinguish between a machine error and a human error. What was the problem? Was it the machine? Was it the... People, those memory tubes were always going bad. There's an engineer gazing at tube number 36. Uh, all these numbers are, are, you know, hexadecimal memory locations. If anything went wrong with the voltage or something, you, you know, just like your old black and white television going fuzzy, the whole thing would turn into garbage. No use, went home. Impossible to follow this damn thing. Where's a directory? They had no, no directory of the program. I mean, the programs were all written in, in hard fixed address machine language before closing down in disgust. And they kept logbooks of all this, which is, which is the, the wonderful thing for us because of, I think, the fear of patent disputes so on the Institute. After the project was over, put all this stuff in the basement where it sat in, in, until, until I showed up. Um, midnight oil, so they were always working late, falling asleep. Uh, a demonstration for Dr. von Neumann, Maniac, which became... The nickname, which stands for Mathematical and Numerical Integrator and Calculator. Maniac lost its memory. Maniac regained its memory. False start, machine or human, the usual question. Aha, you know, trying to see what was wrong with the code. Found trouble in code, I hope. Code error, machine not guilty. So <laughs> I can be just as stubborn as this thing. What's the use? Good night. MC is master control, so they're just they're turning the whole thing off, the hell with it, way off. Something, then there were physical problems, the air conditioning problems. One of the belts is stuck, the smell of burning rubber is in the air. And, and notice the, the en engineer on this is Baricelli, the guy we're going to hear about in a little bit. There's tar falling on the cards, and then the next person there is the tar is actually melting out of the roof. Um, here, a mouse. It, this is uh, 4.30 in the morning. 
So they ran all night, particularly on these bomb calculations. Mouse climbed into the blower behind the regulator rack, set blower to res- vibrating result, no more mouse. Heck of a wreck. And it says, here lies mouse, born and died, born, question mark, died 4.50 a.m. May 27th, 1953. And one of the engineers has penciled in, here lies Marston mouse. <laughs> so you can tell they, they, they were at odds with Marston Morse. High speed was was... 16, highest speed was 16 kilocycles. That's low speed. I have now duplicated both results. How will I know which is right, assuming one? That's, that's, that's the essential problem with saying, well, we're going to solve it by having two computers. You don't, you don't know. This is now the third different output. I know when I'm licked. Machine, and this is, you know, the Microsoft problem. Machine ran fine, code isn't. Only happens when the machine is running. And then occasionally the machine is a thing of beauty and a joy forever. Perfect running. This was the Buick, I think, the advertising tagline. When there's bigger and better cars, we'll have them. Bigger and better errors. So, if I diamond also... He brought in the meteorologists, and that survives, I think, stronger than anything, anything else of his legacy in the, in the fluid dynamics pro- department here at the university. It really is a direct outgrowth of what von Neumann did by bringing this almost frighteningly large group of, you know, 1946, the computer was still four or five years out from being complete, but he, he brought in the meteorologists to write the codes to predict the weather if they got the machine running with their wives and children who had no place to live. So... Some of these people came, some of them left, but the very strong meteorology group stayed and worked, you know, very hard. I mean, here it's January 1954, and they they finally have a forecast for November 6th. So they they weren't they had not got to Richardson's dream yet. Here they've got a one-hour forecast, and eventually they did. They actually got to where they were doing 24-hour forecasts within an hour or two. So they they did pretty well. They kept trying to re-predict this the same hurricane that had hit New Jersey. I think in, in 1950 or something. And, and really what they did succeeded in the sense that we now, we still use the same codes, we just have way more processing power and way more fine-grained input. But, but really the, what, what they tried to do was, did turn out to be correct. But they were facing not only the, predicting the weather, but surviving the, the Princeton weather. They're, they've lost all their power from a thunderstorm. And they were trying to do a three-level three-level fork. They were only working in three levels. Um, another thunderstorm. They kept, you know, thunderstorms were terrible for this electrostatic memory. They worked on stellar evolution. That was Martin Schwarzschild here at the university who went von Neumann brought over there to run models of, uh, and and Hedy Selberg did all the coding on that. And this these problems ran for really about three years solid. Just whenever there was free time. Hedy uh, and Martin were running these models of different kinds of stars and how they evolved over time. Very computationally intensive. They did, to, I think, I think to keep the historians at bay, um, they did a backwards ephemeris that, that reverse predicted the positions of, of planets going back to 601 BC, and that was very useful to people trying to date ancient documents that, that talked about where things were. Uh, Sun Young Wong did actually predicting traffic flow on freeways. They were just starting to build freeways in Los Angeles, and he did some work on predicting how lane changes would affect the flow. A lot of stuff was very, very far ahead of his time. And then at the core of all the work, the, the real funding for this project in the end came from the AEC, the Atomic Energy Commission. 
So a whole lot of the work was, was coding for hydrogen bombs. The first successful bomb, Ivy Mike, was, was, would not have happened without the, the problems that were run here. It run actually before the machine was publicly announced or acknowledged as working. It ran six weeks doing one H-bomb calculation. So it's, it's the irony is that, that Oppenheimer, who sort of got in so much trouble for being seen as, as slowing down the development of the hydrogen bomb or being against it in some way, was actually the, you know, the, the greatest step forward was done under his watch at the Institute. So it was, it was I mean, secrecy is always a bad thing, and, 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 and people didn't know what was really going on. Also, working on the H-bomb, uh, with Teller was Stan Ulam, and Ulam is, I think, I mean, if I, if I could interview one person, if I could go back and, and talk to one person who's no longer alive, it would be Ulam. It was von Neumann, I think he was pacing his life. He died of cancer in 1957, but I think he planned to live longer and get back to biology, and he, and he left all these unfinished notes about the question of self-reproducing machines and how biology could be theoretically understood. So here's his outline. Turing, exclamation mark, not Turing. And then at the end, Ulam. And what, what, you know, what was this Ulam? And this is a letter uh, Ulam wrote to him in 1952, very, very early. And you get a sense of what they were talking about. They were really looking at what we now call cellular automata, the, the, the question of how you can build an artificial digital universe and, and what do you have to do to get self-replicating behavior to sort of ignite? It was very similar to the... This was, this was done the week after the H-bomb. In the same way, how do you get a chain reaction to, to start a thermonuclear explosion? What do the conditions have to be right? How do you make the soup so that life can sort of take hold out of, out of, out of what's otherwise a dead, crystalline universe? And this, this stuff was never really... Um, you know, published thoroughly or, 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 or looked at. So Phenomenon brought in Baricelli, the, the guy who I'm, who's my hero, who really came to the Institute in, in 1953 to do this kind of stuff, to, to play on the computer. He had just written, written a thesis on, on the mathematics of evolution. And he came in, you know, March 1953, really treating this... this in the late hours of the night, after the AEC people went home to bed, usually from midnight to six or eight in the morning, Baricelli was given the computer and allowed to run these artificial evolution experiments to see if he could evolve these numerical organisms. And he, he saw everything digitally. He had, he had a great gift with the computer. It always worked for him. Um, other people went running. You know, he needed three engineers to help. He was the only person allowed to run the thing alone. And, and he had done a lot of work as a research as a viral geneticist. So he had ideas about how this was, you know, 1953, the year that the structure of DNA was elucidated. And he's looking at how something similar, instead of how, you know, the Watson Crick people were trying to decode how life worked, he was going from the bottom up, trying to encode a process and see if it would become lifelike. Dr. Baricelli claims machine is wrong, code is right. So he believed in his codes. And now I'll run through these. These quotes, he's explaining what he's doing, making a cyclical universe because it was very so small. He made it cyclic so the animals in, or the creatures inside would be like ants going around in a round sheet of paper. They never saw the end. They thought they were in, a, in an infinite universe. And all sorts, he thought he saw, he was either totally crazy or he was, was ahead of his time. But he thought he saw evolutionary phenomenon taking place. He thought he saw parasites and 
Um, you know, you have a sense of humor. If it's that easy to create living organisms, why don't you create a few yourself? We still have a whole industry of people doing what's now called artificial life, and, and nobody has succeeded yet, but, but you never know. And he, he had many insights that, that it really wasn't just mutations, it was crossing of code that led to more vigorous organisms, and parasites were a key to driving the, the whole sort of evolutionary process. And he tried to build larger universes and combine them. He didn't live to see the Internet, or he, he would have, you know, who knows where we would be today. Did this all, all the output was on punched cards. He was the first person I know to, to document computer viruses to say that these, these, that actually some of his cards were infected by self-replicating parasites on, on one of his game programs. So all these were printed out. They're buried in the archives here. Um, so he was, he was really a, a, you know, he was a biologist looking at this as, as a field biologist going out into nature. And I'm like the, the paleontologist going back and looking at the fossils and seeing what, what did he see in this. Now he's got up to you know, thousands of generations. But no matter how much it keeps mutating, they'll never, you know, they're not becoming living. They need, they're pure genotype. There's no phenotype. And, and you've, got, you've got to give these genes, you've got to let them go out and do something so they can bring back more resources and so on. And, and he was doing that in the abstract. But that's what really happened in the real world. These order codes that, that von Neumann came up with and Goldstein, they, they were immediately useful. They immediately started doing mathematics for, for bombs and finance and um, music and everything else. So those codes have gone out in the world and done useful things, and the codes that are successful get money thrown at them and grow further. So in a way, what Baricelli dreamed of is what really has happened, that these order codes have become like nucleotides that code for useful proteins and build structures. And I mean, a lot of us in this room can remember when you ran a program and, and when you were done, you killed it. Now, you know, we just, our programs keep running and they, when you do some, visit a website, it sends Java programs to you over the, you know, activates things on your computer. So the whole universe of, of like he's saying here, of, of Coding for proteins is something that's really, really the analogy of that is happening in the computational universe today in a way that, that, that to him was just a dream. That if we developed a habit of, of transmitting programs, which at that time, you know, all you could only do it by taking a suitcase full of punch cards to the next computer, now we actually do that. This stuff is moving around at the more or less the speed of light. And he was very determined to, not to scare people. This isn't life, it's not a model of life, it's just something. It's a different kind of evolution. And he saw that it had sort of an intelligence behind it, which wasn't a, a higher-up intelligence. It was a bottom-up intelligence. That, that evolution itself is a computational process, and it, does, it doesn't need to see where it's going, but it does lead to intelligent behavior. And that what happened you know, in the RNA world billions of years ago, there's no reason that could not happen in a different substrate today. And I, I, of course, I think he, a lot of what he said was crazy and a lot of it had some truth to it. This was his last published paper on whether, you know, how, how could this process ever take off with a life of its own. When I got to the Institute and went through all these, they had seven boxes, cardboard boxes of unprocessed papers. And on the last day I was there, the librarian came and said, oh, Mr. Dyson, you know, we found another box. It was totally black, covered in dirt, and it was, it was full of World War II teletype manuals and stuff. And at the bottom of the box was this box of Baricelli's punched cards. And it actually was Baricelli's universe. So 
the, the source code and the drum code to set up the universe on the drum and the cards that, that uh, sort of inoculated with these organisms are all there. They were fossilized. It's sort of like Jurassic Park. They're, they're sitting there, you know, waiting to, to come back to life. And if you let them loose on the Internet, what would, what would they think? And a, a note from the engineer here, you know, this is Baricelli's note to the engineer, and the engineer answers, you know, Mr. Baricelli, there must be something about this code that you haven't explained yet. And I think that's what Neumann was pacing himself to do. He wanted to get back to this and come up with, I think he would have done what he did for theory, like theory of games and economic behavior, you know, a monumental 600-page book. He was outlining that to do that for, this is a talk that was sort of an outline of a general and logical theory that would cover both living and non-living processes that, that self-replicate. Unfortunately, he got distracted by the, you know, the politics and the forces of the time. He fell in with the generals. And, but I think, you know, he, after he left the Atomic Energy Commission, there's a letter to Gamow about uh, trying to solve the genetic code problem with proteins. He had accepted a position at UCLA where and he was attracted by the biologists who were there. I think he would have moved back to this, and it's, it's a great tragedy that we didn't. Um, this is a letter actually written by Freeman, who was delegated by Oppenheimer to look at the question what to do about this computer project, which was sort of spinning its wheels by 1954. Von Neumann had left. They were, they were no longer breaking new ground. Freeman had a way of always encapsulating things well, that, that sort of Vonomi was a loose, you know, a school unto himself. And then this is one of the answers, um, which may have been true, that he had, he had sparked this revolution, but, you know, it's time for him to get on with something else. And back at the Institute, thing, things really declined. I mean, you never saw this in the old days. So in 1955, no customers at all. They're now they're like sitting around waiting for customers who need things computed. The university wasn't into computer. Was other than Martin Schwarzwald, nobody was coming over from the university saying, "I want you to compute this." You know, no customers. All troubles were code troubles. The machine's running so well that you know that they're just having troubles with the code, no longer with the machine. No customers, no customers, no customers all day. No customers. So, it, 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 you know, I think the institute made the. If they, the idea had to go into, you know, theoretical computing in a big way, which which IBM and other people were doing, or else pull the switch, and they just chose to pull the switch. So the last person to compute anything, 12 o'clock midnight, July 15th, 1958, Julian H. Bigelow. He's actually running a physics problem. He's just personally interested in it. And at 12 o'clock midnight, he turns it off, and that's that's the end. So Pomerine, Bigelow, Goldstein, these of, of this three, Pomerine's the only, the only person still alive. But they really, you know, they were here in Princeton and made this happen. And a lot of people, I think, in, in this town gave them support. Bigelow expressed that really well, that, that, that this, was, this was a wave that was, a tidal wave that was going to break. If somebody had to do it, they, they did, and things would never be the same. It was... It, you know, coalesced around von Neumann. It would have happened somewhere, somehow, later, sooner or later. Ulam's sort of eulogy of von Neumann. He died so prematurely, seeing the promised land, but hardly entering it. And the promised land was really the, it was the vision of, of Leibniz and all these great philosophers of a world where, where, where mathematics was, was no longer separate from the world, but really was part of it. And the whole idea, which, you know, seemed outrageous at that time, that the, that the universe could be seen as a computer and that the computer 
could be seen as a different form of universe is now really, really more and more acceptable. I mean, people like Lee Smolin are talking about this in, in, in really reasonably realistic ways. That the, or John Wheeler, it from bit that the, you really can look at the universe as a form of computation. And our computers are getting large and complicated enough that you certainly can look at them as a, as an ecology, if not a universe itself. So that's the end. Thanks. Terrible, great thanks to the Institute for Advanced Study. Um, this is how to get hold of me. If anyone knows someone who worked on this project or has any recollections, let me know because I'm trying, I'm trying to gather this, these memories before they evaporate completely. Thank you very much. And there's time for a few questions. Yeah, we can take a few questions if anybody has some. And, and Dick Cheney is waiting for you on, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> at 9 o'clock. So. Yeah, we're there. Any questions? Okay, well, have a good evening. Yes. Thank you.